You are Locked On Mets, your daily New York Mets podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello to all you amazing Mets fans. You're listening to Locked On Mets, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. To get this show every day, I need you to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Also, don't forget to tell your smart device to play Podcast Locked on Mets. On today's show, I'm going to continue to celebrate the 1986 World Champion New York Mets. And on today's show, we're going to be specifically talking about the regular season. In the first half, I'm going to talk about some of the individual performances by some of the Mets players. And then in the second half, I'm going to kind of talk about some of the overarching storylines and things that played out throughout that 86 season. Before we get to any of that, though, I'm your host, Ryan Finkelstein. If you want to find any of my work, check me out on Twitter at FinkelsteinRyan. You can also find some of my writing about the Mets at MetsmerizedOnline.com. So throughout this week, I have obviously been going through everything leading up to 1986. On Monday's show, I talked about some of the prospects as they came through the Mets system. Mookie Wilson kind of being the first part of that team that rose to the surface. And then guys like Daryl Strawberry, Doc Gooden, Wally Backman, all these players that ended up making up that 1986 team coming to the major leagues. And then on yesterday's show, I talked with Brian Wright about Gary Carter and Keith Hernandez. Those two guys coming in really being the main leaders the longtime all-star veterans that put that young team over the top and turned them into contenders. But there was a few more moves that needed to be made heading into 1986. General Manager Frank Cashing saw two real glaring holes. He wanted to get another starting pitcher, preferably a lefty, to accent his young rotation, and a right-handed bat that he could pair with Wally Backman at second base. For his left-handed starting pitcher, Cashin traded with the Boston Red Sox to land Bob Ojeda. And Ojeda almost became an ace of sorts for the Mets, turning in just an outstanding season. The veteran left-hander picked up 18 wins going 18-5, pitched to a 2.57 ERA, and finished fourth in the NL in Cy Young voting with Ojeda and the incumbent trio of Doc Gooden, Ron Darling, and Sid Fernandez the Mets had the best rotation in the National League. And Rick Aguilera often gets forgotten too as the fifth starter, but he was very good as well. Then you look at their bullpen with Jesse Roscoe and Roger McDowell really being the main two guys anchoring that back end. The two of them each collected over 20 saves. They pitched a ton of innings, over 200 combined. And that was really the foundation of just an incredible pitching staff that cash in had developed over the years and really took the Mets to the incredible heights that they ended up going to that season. For the right-handed bat to play second base, he made another trade with the Minnesota Twins to acquire Tim Tuffle. Tuffle was a really good player for the Mets. Now, Wally Backman ended up really grabbing hold of that starting second base job, just playing outstanding in 86. But Tuffle got his fair share of starts as well. It was really solid off the bench as a pinch hitter. Another player that came off the bench 
that was an addition of sorts was Kevin Mitchell. Mitchell would finish third in the NL Rookie of the Year voting that season, hitting 277 with a 344 on base percentage and a 466 slugging percentage. He had 36 extra base hits, scored 51 runs, drove in 43 in just 108 games played, and he played all over the diamond as a super utility player when they were maybe not as in fashion as they are nowadays. Mitchell was outstanding to be able to play shortstop, third base, first base, left, center, right. The only positions he did not play in 1986 were second base and catcher. So Kevin Mitchell comes in and was a huge part of that team, really increasing the flexibility of the roster for manager Davey Johnson. Now there's two guys you want to spotlight as well when looking at the 1986 Mets. And I already talked about one of them and Wally Backman because Wally Backman and Lenny Dykstra kind of embodied the overall personality and grit and grind mentality of that 1986 Mets team. Some people refer to them as the Wild Boys atop the lineup known for always having dirty jerseys. They played the game with a reckless abandonment. They always were the great table setters atop the lineup. They threw their bodies all over the field, stealing bases, scoring runs, making diving plays. It was just a highlight reel day after day between those two players doing anything they could to get wins. Backman led the Mets with a 320 batting average. He stole 13 bases and scored 67 runs. Meanwhile, if you look at war wins above replacement, which values who was the best player on the team outside of Keith Hernandez, Lenny Dykstra had the highest war on the Mets in 1986 at 4.7. He stole 31 bases. He scored 77 runs. He played outstanding defense in center field. He really stole Mookie Wilson's starting job in center field after Mookie went down in spring training after getting hit in the eye by a throw from Rafael Santana. Wilson would come back and end up playing a lot of left field after George Foster struggled, but Dykstra really did take hold of that starting center fielder job, and he was just outstanding from the regular season all the way through the postseason. The Mets do not do as much damage and win 1986 if it's not for Lenny Dykstra and, of course, Wally Backman as well. Finally, you can't talk about that team also without getting to the run producers in the middle of the lineup. Gary Carter and Keith Hernandez, I spent a whole podcast talking about them yesterday, but they bear mentioning again. Daryl Strawberry had a great season in right field, and Ray Knight was the real surprise, ending up taking hold of that starting job at third base. Every single one of those four guys eclipsed 75 RBIs, and together they drove in 357 runs. So that was the real production in the middle of the lineup. Now in just a minute, I'm going to talk about some of the overarching storylines that we saw throughout the 1986 season, how the Mets performed as a team, and more. But first, from an early morning breakfast burrito to a 12-pack of beer while you're watching Netflix or whatever you're doing, sometimes you just need what you need delivered fast. And that is where Postmates comes in. Postmates is your personal delivery service for food, grocery delivery, whatever kind of delivery you need all year round. They're the largest on-demand network in the U.S. and offer delivery from all the restaurants, grocery and convenience stores, and traditional retailers that you could possibly want or need. 24 hours a day, 
365 days a year, Postmates will bring you what you need within the hour. No more trips to the store. Postmates will deliver anything to you. Download the app for iOS or Android for free and then begin to browse local restaurants and businesses and track your delivery in real time. For a limited time, Postmates is giving our listeners $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days when you download the Postmates app. To start your free deliveries, download the app for iOS or Android and use the code Locked On. That's code Locked On for $100 of free delivery credit with no minimum purchase for your first seven days when you download the Postmates app. Anything you need, anytime you need it, Postmate it. There were few teams that came into the 1986 season with more hype than the New York Mets. They were, if you remember, coming off two great years in both 84 and 85 where they had Cliffs 90 wins. Doc Gooden is coming off one of the best seasons we've ever seen from a starting pitcher, particularly one at that young of an age. You had his rookie of the year season, Daryl's rookie of the year season. So much hype around that team. And everyone was just hoping or waiting on them to fail. Early on, the Mets go 2-3 and three in their first five games. And the pundits start to get on the Mets, saying that this team's never going to get it together. They're never going to be the true winners that they expect to be. And very quickly, the Mets shut down all the doubters by reeling off an 11-game winning streak that asserted their dominance in the National League. A huge part of that streak was a four-game sweep against the St. Louis Cardinals. At the time, those Cardinal teams did not get swept in four-game series. It just didn't happen. They were the dominant figure in that league for years. 1982, with Keith Hernandez still on the team, the Cardinals won the World Series. In 1985, they beat out the Mets in the NL East and went to the World Series where they ultimately lost to the Kansas City Royals. They even went to the World Series in 87 as well. So the Cardinals had a great ball club. And for the Mets to sweep them, it sent a message and really set a tone for the rest of the season. In May, the Mets go 18-8. and In June, against the Philadelphia Phillies, the Mets had an incredible win where Tim Tuffle came in and hit a pinch hit, game-winning grand slam. Part of a month that saw them go 19-9 and throughout June. They ended up finishing that month with a 50-21 and record. And Whitey Herzog, the manager of the Cardinals, was basically calling the season over already. The Mets had this division in the bag. Even though the Mets were winning and winning and winning, they were gaining a ton of support with their fans, but they were not gaining support around the league as they quickly became one of the most hated teams in baseball. They developed that reputation based on the curtain calls, the flamboyance that they played with, the energy. Other teams just didn't like it. Namely, the Cardinals and Ozzie Smith was one of the people who spoke out about it saying, quote, the Mets had this arrogance thing all year. You can be a winning team and be likable. You can still have class. Simply put, the Mets didn't care if you thought that they had class or not. They had this mentality where they were the best team in the league. They were going to prove it no matter what they did on or off the field. 
at the end of the game, you would look up and they were going to be winning. The Mets were pranksters, led by Roger McDowell. One of the typical scenes you could see in dugouts during 1986 was guys putting out their shoes being on fire. How did this happen? Guys like McDowell would basically chew up some gum, tape a matchbook on the back of someone's shoes, light it, and a couple minutes later their shoe catches on fire. If you're Ozzie Smith at shortstop and you look over and you see some commotion going on in a dugout while you're losing 8-1, to one, I'm pretty sure something like that's going to rub you the wrong way. But the Mets did not care, and if you really objected to the way they played, the Mets had no problems getting into a brawl and fighting with you about it. Sometimes they would say, hey, if we don't win the game, at least we're going to win the fight tonight. That was the mentality that they had, and it was something that we saw famously in July in Cincinnati at a time when the Mets were going through the dog days of the summer. They just had a really rough time out in Houston where four of their players got arrested. They did not play well against the Astros. They go to Cincinnati. They're about to lose another game. And then they got a big break when Reds outfielder Dave Parker dropped what would have been the final out of the game, allowing the Mets to score a couple of runs and for things to go into extra innings. In the bottom of the 10th inning, Ray Knight gets into a brawl with Eric Davis at third base. That brawl resulted in both of them being ejected, as well as Kevin Mitchell and Mario Soto also being ejected. And then Davey Johnson was at a point where he was down to a limited bench, not a lot of options to finish out this extra inning game, and so he had to get creative. Johnson put Gary Carter at third base, and then he also took Roger McDowell and Jesse Orozco and experimented with a little strategy he had been dying to try out, where he put one in the outfield and another on the pitcher's mound and alternated due to matches with the lefty and the righty to get through the extra inning game. In the bottom of the 12th inning of that game, Keith Hernandez made an incredible play on a bunt to turn two, something he so often did while he played first with the Mets. Howard Johnson hit a home run in the 14th inning that put the Mets ahead, and they ultimately found a way to win that game in surprising fashion, and that kind of kept the ball rolling for the Mets as they would go on to finish July with a 16-11 and record. And ultimately, what was a 66-32 and record at the time, they were 15 and a half games ahead of the competition in the NL East. Going into August, the Mets decided to release George Foster, who was an outstanding player at one point with the Cincinnati Reds, won an MVP in Cincinnati, but just wasn't the same type of guy with the Mets. And really, at that point, showed that his best days were behind him. He was really struggling. So the Mets released him and replaced him with former Mets favorite Lee Mazzilli, who played a big role for them down the stretch as well. Mookie Wilson had already kind of assumed that role as a starting left fielder. And the Mets went on to have another good month in August. They went into September with a commanding 19-game lead in the division. They ultimately clinched on September 16th and would finish the year with the franchise's best record of 108 wins. That 1986 Mets team was so beloved in the city of New York that they actually set a New York City sports record at the time with 2.76 million fans coming to the games. They were everywhere. The players 
were in commercials and on TV and everything else. They went into the playoffs as the presumptive favorites to win the World Series, but actually going from that incredible regular season and ultimately getting to the finish line where they had won and they had beaten the Boston Red Sox, there was a lot of drama that was still left to unfold as the Mets had to go through two grueling playoff series to become champions. I'm going to talk about each of those series throughout the rest of this week on tomorrow's show. I'm going to talk about the NLCS against the Houston Astros, and then finally talk about the World Series against the Boston Red Sox on Friday. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you want more great baseball content, check out the Locked On Fantasy Baseball Podcast right here on the Locked On Podcast Network. All you have to do to get the show is tell your smart device to play podcast Locked On Fantasy Baseball.